Good morning. My name is Judy Laramie, and it's my privilege to read God's Word today. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Judy, for reading that for us this morning. It's so good to see all of you. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, we are so delighted to see you and to have you with us today. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. As some of you may know, may know, I grew up uh, in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor of a church for uh, as long as I can remember until he retired about uh, nine years ago now. And there are a lot of things when you grow up in church that you, when your dad is the pastor, I should specify, there are a lot of things you remember about the service. Whether or not anybody else remembers anything or not, when your dad's speaking, generally there are things that jump out at you. And some of that is because of repetition, some of it is because you're used as an illustration and all of those sorts of things. But but in particular, I remember my dad on several, uh, several occasions um, using this one particular f- paraphrase that comes from Albert Barnes's commentary on the book of Second Peter. And I had opportunity as recently as about three weeks ago to hear my dad preach again at, his, uh, at the church where he is a member. And he referenced this quote once again, and it just struck me. Uh, you've probably heard me reference it if you've been around for any length of time, but I want to share it with you again because as we come to a passage like this one this morning, I think it's very helpful for us. And the quote goes like this, the pastor's job is not to find some untold truth never before proclaimed, but to remind us of the things that we are so apt to forget. There is a sense when we come to passages like the one that you just heard read for you this morning that are so familiar and so commonplace in the, uh, in the Christian life and experience, there is a tendency for the familiarity of that text to make the text itself lost on us. And yet when we come to texts like this, we need to remember that the familiarity of this text does not take away from how profound it actually is. Paul had spent the first two chapters of this book building the case for the sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation. He's going to continue that theme by launching into a lengthy doctrinal treatise that actually carries through several chapters in the book of Galatians. So whenever we come to a passage like this where where the author seems to be repeating or restating the same idea that they've already referenced, rather than dismissing it as being familiar, we actually need to pay special attention. We need to pay even closer attention 
to what's being stated because the Holy Spirit in his inspiration of the text never wastes words. He is reminding us of what we are apt to forget. And Paul, as a pastor, certainly has that as his drive and his motivation as he presents this text to us this morning. And so I want you to look, as we have all of that in mind, look at verses 15 and 16. These are verses that we referenced briefly last week, but we're going to take a much deeper look at them this week. And here's what it says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. If you remember the context, he's speaking here about his exchange with Peter. He's talking about those within the church who had come from Judaism into Christianity. And he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and we are not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's what Paul ultimately is presenting to us. He's saying, look, if, if salvation by works, if obedience to the law, if our ability to obey the Old Testament commands of God for the people of Israel, if that was the means by which salvation was attainable, then if there was anyone in the entire world who was able to, maintain, or to earn or maintain their salvation, it would have been the Jews, After all, Paul makes the argument, we were the chosen people of God. We were a nation that was led by God. We were given the law of God. We had been raised in the traditions and the observance of those instructions. And then he says, we are not like the lawless Gentiles. And when he says that, he's not saying it in a condemning fashion. What he's saying is the Gentile people had existed for as long as Israel had been a chosen nation as a people who did not have the law of God. They had not been exposed to the scripture. They had not been led by God in the way that the children of Israel had. And yet says Paul, even we, with all of our advantages as a people, with all of our exposure to the true God of Israel, with all of the instruction that we'd received in the Old Testament, with all of the observances and rites and rituals in which we'd participated, even we cannot be justified by our works. Even for us, says Paul, salvation cannot be derived from what we do. It could only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Now my guess is there is no one in this room who hears me say that and says, really, salvation by faith in Christ? That's a brand new concept for me. I had no idea that's what Christians believe. Unless you're here and you've had no exposure to Christianity, but if you've been around Christianity at all, you have likely heard this idea of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. But the question for us is this, and it's part of the reason that we referenced the the Baptist Confession of Faith this morning, which is what actually is faith? Because when we think about faith, we tend to think about it within the context of a belief system. Believing the right things about God, subscribing to proper truths and orthodox beliefs about God. But here's the problem with that definition of faith. James chapter two, verse 19, James writes to to his church and he says, you believe that God is one. He's referencing the Old Testament Shema, the idea that, that the children of Israel every morning upon waking would say, the Lord our God is one God. And he says to these people, you believe that God is one. You believe orthodox truth. That's great, says James. Even the demons believe that, 
and they tremble. And his argument is to say this, you can have orthodox belief, you can in theory subscribe to the right tenets of faith, you can believe the right things about God, you can even proclaim the right things about God, but that does not inherently mean that you have faith in that God. In other words, what Paul is intimating here and what James explicitly says is that faith is not simply believing the right things about God, but that we believe what God has said. And that is a subtle difference, but it is a vital one. As one scholar stated it, and I hope this will be instructive for you, he said, faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Not just an assent to truths, but heartfelt valuing and treasuring of all that God promises to be for us in Jesus. Do you see the difference? One is the idea of a belief system, a series of truths which one could sign their name to. The other is a heartfelt valuing, an appreciation, an understanding, a true belief that what God has promised he will do and what he has accomplished through Jesus Christ is actually applicable to your life. Do you see the difference? In other words, to quote one other scholar, what you see in Jesus is what you get with God. He is exactly like his father, which means God is one who stoops, serves, suffers, bleeds, and dies for you. And to believe that changes everything. So then what assures our salvation, understand this, what assures your salvation is not the sincerity with which you prayed a salvation prayer. What assured your salvation is not the intensity of your belief or the profundity of your experience because all of those things ultimately point to you. They point to what you've accomplished, what you've felt, the way that you might feel on any given day which is, which is subject to change. No, what assures us of our salvation is the object of our faith. The Christian's assurance, says Paul, is found in the strength of our Savior. Or to say it differently in the words of one pastor, it is better to have a weak faith in a strong Savior than a strong faith in a weak Savior. And so what Paul is telling the Galatian Christians is the same thing that he's telling us today, which is this, placing your faith in a strong Savior is what leads to justification. A justification is another word that requires definition. It's a word that we hear often within Christian circles, and there's all sorts of other applications for what the word justification means. But justification is, in its truest sense, a legal term. It has a legal definition. But in the context that Paul is using it, what he's saying is that justification simply refers to your standing before God. In other words, if God's standard for human righteousness is absolute perfection, if the standard for God to be able to accept you as part of his family, to adopt you into his family, to receive you, if his standard is absolute sinlessness and perfection, then how can we who have fallen short of that standard be justified, or in other words, viewed as righteous? The classic way to define this within church circles is the word justified. You can break it out and and pretend that it means just as if I'd never sinned, just if I'd, right? That that's what God's expectation for 
for acceptance is. And what Paul is saying here is the only way to receive that justification, the only way to be received by God, the only way to be viewed as completely righteous, completely holy, completely acceptable is through faith, a true belief in the promises of God as provided by Jesus Christ. And here's how important justification is. J.I. Packer said it this way. The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. When Christians let the thought of justification drop out of their minds, the true knowledge of salvation drops out with it. And it cannot be restored till the truth of justification is back in its proper place. When Atlas falls, everything that rested on his shoulders comes crashing down too. In other words, faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life lived on your behalf, his perfect obedience that you in and of yourself could never completely obey, his sacrificial death in your place and his glorious resurrection is the foundation upon which everything else we believe rests. And the argument of J.I. Packer and the argument of Paul himself is that if we lose justification, our right standing with God by faith in Christ alone, if we lose that, if we believe that there is any other way to God other than through Jesus, or that Jesus alone is not entirely sufficient for our salvation, if we lose that, every other doctrine begins to topple. Now that immediately sounds like hyperbole. But the reason it needs to be addressed is because far too often Christians don't give any thought to where their justification lies. We don't give the proper weight to the role of justification in our lives. And Paul here focuses so much on this idea because when we misunderstand or forget justification by faith in Jesus alone, everything else in the Christian faith is lost And here's why that's not hyperbole. I think we can make the case very simply. I can actually show it to you in four steps. Let me show you how this works. It It only takes a few steps to show how denying or adding to the exclusivity of Jesus unravels the very nature of God. So if you take, for instance, the doctrine of grace that's known as unmerited favor, in other words, the idea of unearned grace, that God has grace toward you that you do not deserve, not because of anything that you've done, but solely because of him. And we find that in texts like Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, which says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." So follow this, if justification by faith begins to lose its prominence in our mind, if grace could be earned by your own good behavior, by your own right thinking, by your own subscription to particular religious tenets, then grace is no longer a gift, it is something that is owed you. And if grace is not a gift, then you have earned it, and therefore you have something to boast about. You would therefore get to look down upon others and like the Pharisees say, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. And if you get to boast about the fact that you've earned God's grace, then who gets the glory? You and not God. And in that case, God would prove himself 
not to be loving and caring and kind. He'd prove himself to be dependent on humanity and punitive in his actions. Handing out grace to cronies who through their behavior have shown that they have something to offer him. Listen, and if God needs something from you in order to extend grace, then he is no longer self-sufficient and he is no longer omnipotent and he is no longer God. He would be weak and ineffectual and dependent. The very nature of who he is would cease to exist. This is exactly what we quoted today when we talked about what does faith enable in us and what we said is it puts on display the glory of God and his attributes, the excellency of Christ and his nature, the power of the Holy Spirit in his workings. True faith reveals who God is And as soon as justification, our right standing before God, comes from anything other than faith in Jesus Christ alone, we have declared through our actions, if not through our beliefs, that God is actually not God, but we are. Do you see how vital this foundational truth is? And you could do this, by the way, with just about any doctrine. I actually worked through the doctrines of grace this week and applied this same test to it. You can do it with each and every one of them. I won't take up all your time doing that today. But what Paul is saying here is what mankind needs more desperately than anything else is to be justified. We need that right standing. It's what we long for. It's what we hope for. It's what people every day are working for, trying to justify their existence, justify their life, justify their motives, justify their behaviors, justify their worth and their value in the eyes of the world around them. It is the thing that we most desperately need, as we talked about in the first week of this series. And what Paul is saying is, I agree with that. That is what you need. But what you need more than anything is to be justified in the eyes of God. You need to be accepted. You need to be in right standing. But you will never find justification in your own good works. As R.C. Sproul said, the justification that Paul is speaking of here is the righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively. Now look at how this begins to play itself out in a really beautiful way, beginning in verse 17. Paul's continuing this legal argument. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Paul here is anticipating the the counter-argument of the the legalists and the Judaizers. He's, He's predicting that they're going to respond to his claims that justification comes only through faith in Christ by saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds way too easy. Are you telling me, Paul, that all I need in order to be accepted by God is to receive passively the finished work of Jesus by faith? And their counter-argument then was, why would anyone bother trying to live a morally upright life? Because that is what legalists are always concerned about. They are always concerned about the external behavior at the cost of the heart. But Paul's point is this. He says they are missing the whole point of right behavior. So if a parent were to give his child an instruction and say, listen, son, before you go hang out with your buddies this evening, I want you to go and do all your chores around the house. I want you to make sure you go mow the lawn. I want you to pick up those things that we had laying out in the garage. I want you to organize a little bit. And I want you to make sure that you do that before you leave tonight. 
the child has two different ways in which they can obey that instruction. The first way that a child can obey is to operate out of fear. Well, what if I don't bother cleaning my room and I get punished for it? Or worse yet, what if my parents' love for me is dependent on my obedience? I better obey to make sure that I can maintain that relationship. Now that child has obeyed the letter of the law. They did the thing that they were told to do, but that father, listen, that father is not honored by that son's obedience. Why? Because a father in that example would be made to look like an unloving, uncaring, emotionally dependent tyrant. It wouldn't reveal his glory, it wouldn't reveal his grace, it wouldn't reveal his loving heart or his attitude. It would make him out to be a cruel dictator in his own home. But the second motivation that a child has to, to obey is to obey out of love. In other words, because I know that my father loves me. And because I know that in fact his love for me will never change, I want to obey him. I want to please him. I want to show my love for him through my obedience. And in that kind of obedience, the father is honored. See, the Judaizers and the legalists operated the first way. They operated out of fear. You better do the right thing or God's going to get you. You better do the right thing or God's going to stop loving you. You better do the right thing or God's going to abandon you. And it was a means of control that they were able to exercise in their own lives and in the lives of others. They wanted everyone else to, be, to operate out of fear as well. But their obedience, and we find this in the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in the New Testament, their obedience was not honoring to God because it betrayed his character. It did not accurately reveal who God is. But the counter to that, says Paul, is if we sin then as Christians, do we make Christ out to be a sinner? And his answer is, absolutely not. Well, why is that? Because when we as Christians fail to obey, when we fall into sin, the reminder for us is that we do not have a cruel, punitive type of father. We have a loving father who calls us into better, deeper things when he gives us instruction. So Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, when you fall into sin, do not raise the whole question of your justification again. In other words, what he's saying to you, Christian, is when you sin, and you will, when you sin, do not begin to question all over again if you've actually been received by Christ. When we sin, we should not feel that we are back under the wrath of God, but that we have hurt a loving father. In other words, is what you are living for worth Christ dying for, to paraphrase one pastor? And what Paul is reminding us of is that our identity as Christians is provided by Christ. And Christ is not honored by our fearful submission any more than he is honored by our sin. But he is honored by our joyful, trusting obedience. Because, says Paul in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So he's saying, look, in the finished work of Christ, the demands of the law were fulfilled. 
all of the Old Testament text that gave all of the instruction, that, that gave a demonstration of what it was to be, perfect, perfect, to be perfectly obedient to God, all of the things that we were unable to do and unable to obey, Christ perfectly did. And when he lived that perfect life and died that substitutionary death in our place, he was then, he was then fulfilling the law for us so that we would no longer be under the bonds of that law. But Paul is saying, as a Christian, if you try to earn or maintain your salvation through observing the law, it is like you are trying to rebuild what has been torn down. You are going back into slavery, but this time you're doing it voluntarily. Your mouth is saying that Jesus is the only way, but your life is saying that there remains work yet to be done. And so Paul is saying, if you have been saved by faith in Christ, resubmitting to the law makes you a slave again. And we'll talk about that at length in chapter 3. But, but then notice the connection he makes in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, when I was living this religious lifestyle, when I was obeying the tenets of Judaism, I was trying to earn my place in God's kingdom. I was trying to earn my justification, my right standing in the sight of God. I was trying to earn it from him by doing the right things. I was trying to earn my place in God's kingdom. But instead, it led me to a spiritual wasteland. Prior to coming to the knowledge of the grace of Jesus, Paul was viewing his relationship with God as transactional. God, I'm going to observe this custom. I'm going to obey this command. I'm going to avoid these people. I'm going to perform this service. And in exchange, I want a right relationship with you. And what Paul is saying here is, in my efforts to earn God's love, I was running from the free love he had already provided. I was saying to him, thanks, but no thanks. I would rather earn it. When the whole time God was saying, you are trying to earn something that you are incapable of earning, would you please receive what I am freely offering you? And so Paul says, I had to die to that mentality in order to live to God. He says, the law led me to death. It revealed to me that I was incapable of obeying it on any meaningful level. It revealed to me that apart from Christ and his infusion of a new life, I was spiritually dead in the sight of God. Not only was I incapable of earning a place with him, I was like a corpse, unable of responding at all. But when I realized that God's love for me was not dependent on me, says Paul, that it was rooted in his faithfulness and his goodness and not in my ability to perform, it was a relief for me. Because for the first time, it finally allowed me to die to that law that I could no longer try to perform so that I could live to God. Because again, what God is most after is your internal affections, not your external adherence. He is after the relational, not the transactional. He is after your heart. He is for your joy in him. And that leads Paul to say in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
And we talked about this at the end of Galatians chapter one at length, so you can go back and listen to that if you'd like, but understand what he's saying here. He's saying if you want to understand the seriousness of your sin, if you want to see the depth of your own depravity, what your heart is actually capable of, of how offensive our lives are to a holy and righteous God, if you want to see how wicked our hearts are in the sight of God, all you need to do is look to the cross. Because your sin and my sin was so heinous, so objectionable, so wicked, that nothing short of the sacrifice of God incarnate could bring forgiveness for it. Therefore, if there is anything that I can do to provide my own righteousness, says Paul, or earn my keep or maintain my salvation, then I have made the grace of God useless. It's pointless. What does the grace of God mean to us on any level What is the value of it in any meaningful way if I can accomplish for myself my own salvation? And if that is true, then Christ died for no purpose. But thankfully, Christ gloriously provided for us and look at the result. In one of the most profound texts in all of scripture, here's what Paul writes. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says when you receive this justification, this right standing before God, you are placed into Christ. That's a hard concept for us because we are creatures that by design are limited by our understanding of time. But what he's saying is in a very real way, if you're in this room and you know Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ went to the cross, everything about you, your sinful nature, everything that was worth condemnation in the eyes of God, everything that deserved the wrath of God was actually placed into Christ so that when the nails were driven through his hands and through his feet and the crown of thorns crushed into his forehead, and when God the Father turned his back on his own son, he was turning his back on your sin and mine as well. That when Jesus Christ was crucified, your old nature and everything about you that was deserving of the wrath of God was crucified as well. When you come to know Christ, you are given a new identity in Christ. That you are placed into him. And Paul describes this in two different ways. He says, first, that the old you has been crucified on the cross with Christ. This is what we've been talking about almost exclusively up to this point in this series. It's that idea that that everything that needed to be done for the forgiveness of your sin was accomplished once and for all on the cross so that what marked you as being one deserving of the wrath of God no longer defines you at all. You've been given a whole new life. But secondly, and just as importantly, what Paul says is the life that you now live is lived by faith in God and it's Christ living in you. 
So think about the duality of that picture. You have been placed into Christ. And Christ has been placed in you. That you are surrounded, as it were, by Christ. And Christ dwells in you. It's that idea that for anything to get to you, it has to go through Christ. And should it somehow make its way through Christ, do you know what it means? Christ. Christ outside, Christ inside, Christ indwelling, Christ external. That you are placed in him and that nothing can touch you. No condemnation of Satan. No internal judgment with your own conscience can ultimately condemn you if you've been saved by Christ. We can have a tendency in our lives to view faith as the means to enter into relationship with Jesus, but then think that somehow Jesus has done his part and he leaves the rest to us. Okay, I brought you into faith. I gave you a new identity. I gave you a new life. I brought you into my family. Now go do the right thing. As if somehow we are now left to our own devices. But notice what Paul says. He's saying, when I live by faith in the promises of the resurrected Jesus, it is his acceptance that motivates It is his love that assures. It is his spirit that convicts and empowers. It's that idea, as you've heard us talk about before, that the only one who can live the Christ life is Christ. And if, as a Christian, somehow God was looking for you to be able to live the Christian life on your own terms and to be able to measure up to who Christ is, you would still fail. But thankfully, he hasn't asked you to do that. The life you now live is Christ being lived in you. It is his power. It is his strength. It is his accomplishment. It is faith in him. And our ability to obey Christ now is born of the new identity that we've been given in Christ and empowered by the indwelling of the spirit of Christ. Do you see how miraculous and amazing this is? Because it removes the burden from you. How do we look at texts of scripture where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you because it's light. My burden is easy. And we look at that and we go, what are you talking about? This Christian life is so hard. I can't measure up and I constantly fail and I fall back into old sins and I don't trust the way that I should and I forget to do my devotions and my reading plan fell apart in February. How in the world... How in the world is your yoke easy and your burden light? And the answer is because in the eyes of God, your acceptance and your your ability to be loved does not rest in your ability to perform. It rests in the performance of Jesus Christ and it's already finished. And now you get to live by faith in the Son of God. Believing that his promises are true. That he will do what he said he will do. That he has done what he's already accomplished. And since you have been spiritually crucified and raised with Jesus, everything that is true of him is now true of you. It's what led Jesus to say, I'm not ashamed to call these people, referencing you and me, those adopted into the family of God. He says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. 
Because when God the Father looks at your life, if you have trusted Christ in this way, if you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, he doesn't see your failure. He sees the perfection of his own son. And the realization of God's grace and generosity and love drives us to that second sort of obedience. The obedience that is secured, or obedience rather that is guaranteed by the security of God's love for us. You, are, you stand perfect now in the sight of God, according to Romans 3, 21 and 22. You are adopted into God's family, according to Romans chapter 8. Jesus has become your inheritance and you have become his, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And not only are you placed into Christ, but Christ now lives in you, that you have a whole new life and new motivations and new affections and new desires so that we can begin to live by faith. Faith that what God has declared about me is true. Not how I feel about myself in any particular moment. Certainly not how I behave in every moment. But that the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. My confidence for the life I live has to be in the life that Christ lived for me. Because if it is in anything else, I will end up in depression and soul-crushing anxiety. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian that it starts and it ends with Christ. This is the hope that we get to declare to a lost and dying world, particularly this time of year. That as we come to the baby in the manger, we remember that he died as the savior on a cross. And that even in his death on the cross, his story was not finished because he rose again to defeat sin and death and hell so that we could have new life in him and so that his life could be lived out in us so that we could believe that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. May we remind ourselves of these truths that we are so apt to forget realizing that God's forgiveness was once and for all, even in our forgetfulness of his goodness. And may our theology and our confidence and the message that we proclaim be that same simple yet profound truth, that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, once for all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the massive truth of Galatians chapter 2. A truth that is going to continue to be borne out through the remainder of this book, throughout the remainder of the New Testament, and in the lives of every single person who knows you. We thank you, God, that faith is not merely a belief system. That it is not merely a series of truths 
but God, that it is truth on fire. It is truth made real. It is believing in the promises that you have made. And God, that we are confident because if you are, if you are willing to send your own son to experience and taste hell itself on our behalf, there is nothing about us and nothing in us that is too big or too scary for you. So God, I thank you for the truth of the gospel and I pray, Lord, that we would cling to it, remind ourselves of it, that we would never be so foolish as to believe that we've grown beyond it and that in the moments where we are apt to forget that the spirit that indwells us, the spirit of Christ himself, would preach this sermon to us over and over and over again so that we can live a life of faith in you. You are good and you love us and we thank you for it. And it's in your name we pray.